Well, good morning to you. It's nice to be with you again, and most of you may know that Pastor Rob and Katie are away celebrating their 11th wedding anniversary, so congratulations to them. Um, it's always good to couples to get away for that, to keep the marriage alive, you know, and moving ahead. I read somewhere that the most difficult years of marriage are right after the wedding. So, uh, <laughs> uh, it takes work, right? Yeah, it takes, it takes commitment and love, work, and uh, keeping it alive. So that's great. So I asked uh, uh, Pastor Rump when, when he asked me to fill in for him that if he wanted me to pick up in Nehemiah, he says, no, he says, I think the people really could use a break uh, from Nehemiah, so just bring a message that might be on your heart. And it was one of those times, for whatever reason, that immediately, and I don't know why, but the subject of the mercy of God uh, came to my heart, and it hasn't left. And so I can only assume that maybe it was uh, of the Lord, and that's what's uh, directed me to this subject. That is really, for those of you who are homiletically inclined, is more of a topical message than it is an ex expositional one. Uh, so we're gonna cover a lot of ground, Lord willing, and be in a lot of different verses, but all the verses are gonna be on the screen in front of you so that uh, you'll be able to see them. Uh, just to get us started in the lay the foundation, I'm gonna read from Luke chapter 18, if you have a Bible, Luke 18. If you don't, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you and it's on page 877. Uh, Luke 18, nine to 14. And we're gonna enter into the temple and uh, the Lord Jesus is teaching us a parable about two men that entered into that temple to meet with God. And you're gonna see quite the contrast. So he spoke this parable to them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You can almost stop there. So you've got the idea that he's, he's really addressing this to anyone who thinks by his own merit or works, he can attain favor with God. They're trusting in themselves. Now usually when you do that, you like to compare yourself with others. And you always choose somebody who's a little bit further down the ladder than you when you want to compare yourself to them. So two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, uh, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as a tax collector. I fast twice a week. How many could say that here? I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not as much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Pharisee, tax collector. One believes that he is righteous because of what he's done. The other, the tax collector, realizes his sinful estate. He's guilty. He's a robber. He's an extortioner, probably. He's done a lot of bad things. 
The humility of this man is seen he doesn't even look up to God. And just like he is so undone with himself, he smotes his breast. And the only words that can come out of his mouth are, God, be merciful. He was dependent on the mercy of God in order to be forgiven. And Jesus says that man went away justified. And so as we look at the God who is merciful today, we're looking at what we call an attribute of God. An attribute is simply something that declares who God is by his very nature. And there are several of these. Some have different numbers on the list, but certainly one of them is the attribute of mercy. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the mercy of God. And I hope in one of my purposes is to clarify some of those misunderstandings. Let's go first of all and just look at what we call the attribute of mercy and just put down into simple words I put that the mercy of God is the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress. Now we'll repeat that quite often as we move through the minutes together. It always focuses on those who are in misery or distress irrespective of what they deserve. Four things we can say about it very quickly. Number one, it is eternal. It is eternal. Psalm 103, 17 says this. But the mercy of the Lord, or the ESV says, but the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's my favorite Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's a word that every commentary agrees there is no one English word that can capture the meaning of hesed. It's also the, the key word of the book of Ruth, if you love the book of Ruth. So some call it mercy, some call it loyal love, kindness, loving kindness. The ESV says, but the steadfast love or the merciful love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Now this answers the question, as to when the mercy of God began. And the answer, it never began. Because as he says, it's from everlasting to everlasting. If you talk to the average person on the street about the God of the Bible, or your neighbor, or somebody you work with, and if they know anything about the Bible, oftentimes they will say something like this, well, the God of the Old Testament was a very just, a stern uh, a God of justice, whereas the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy, grace, and, and love. And they don't understand that the one God has the same attributes as part of himself as to his very being from eternity past to eternity in the future. And so that's not a true statement. The God of the Old Testament is, is, has no mercy. He's full of wrath. The God of the New Testament is full of love. In fact, did you know that the mercy of God is spoken four times more in the Old Testament than it is even in the New Testament? So whether it's the Garden of Eden or whether it's the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that God is merciful for his mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. Secondly, we see that this mercy of God is not only eternal, it's plenteous. And 1 Peter 1.3 is a good word here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here we see that in addition to the fact that God's mercy is everlasting or eternal, 
that it's also abundant and plenteous. Therefore, we never have to fear that God's mercy will be depleted since it is eternal and it's also plenteous. There'll never be a time when God has more mercy tomorrow than he had yesterday because it's infinite. It will never be less because the infinite cannot suffer loss. It's eternal, it's plenteous. Thirdly, it's universal. It's universal. The Lord is gracious and merciful, Psalm 145.8, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all he has made. That's the universality of it. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So because God is a God of mercy that is eternal, plenteous, and universal, the unsaved man, the atheist, the agnostic, the person who knows not God, doesn't even want to know God and rejects God, that there is a certain dimension in which, in which he enjoys the mercy of God. He gets rained on, he gets the sun. Now, I don't know about you, most of us here love the ocean, we love the beach, I love to go out early in the morning. I went out yesterday morning early before anyone was there. And I just like, there's nothing quite of God's creation that brings such a sense of peace and tranquility like the ocean to me. I just love, especially when no one else is around. And you can just reflect and meditate and you bring your Bible. And you look at the sands all around and then you think that uh, more than all the sands of the sea, Abraham seed. You see the ocean, you see the waves, you see the power, you see the majesty of God. The unsaved man can enjoy that too. But he's not reflecting on the God of mercy as he enjoys some of the good things the merciful God has given to him. And that brings us to the fourth point because God's mercy is not already eternal, plenteous, and universal. It is limited. So even though it's universal, it's also limited. We read earlier as a service started from Ephesians. You who were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's a hard word. God says of the human race of every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. Dead in your sins. Death is always separation. Always. Anytime you see the word death, think of the word separation. Physical. Spiritual. Eternal. Any death separation you were separated you're dead in your but God and here we go being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we are dead in our trusses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved the mercy of God is available to all it's available to every person in this room whether you've been a person coming here 50 years or whether this is your first time here or whether you've never been to church God's mercy is available to all people. How wonderful. Christ died for the sins of the world. But the mercy of redemption only applies to individuals who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, man likes to think of God as a God of mercy, grace, and love. And he, he, he delights in that. And even the unregenerate man thinks about that. So that you hear when somebody dies and they say, well, he's gone to a better place or he's at rest now. Or he says a lot of things because after all, this God who is rich in mercy, grace, and love just accepts anyone and everyone to heaven when they die. And that's not true. 
They're blinded. It's not true. You take no delight in saying that, but it's just not true. Because while they love the attributes of grace and mercy and love, they don't want to think about the attributes of holiness, justice, and wrath that are also attributes of God. And God cannot contradict himself. One attribute of God, it is impossible for God with one attribute to contradict another attribute. So that unregenerate man moves along in life basing his eternity on the misconception of the nature of God not comprehending that mercy rejected becomes an invitation to justice invited. Just give me what I deserve. You don't want that. I don't want God's justice. Lost forever, doomed, damned, judged forever in hell. I don't want that. So we need to make sure that we don't reject the mercy, gracious, wonderful mercy of God and invite his judgment. Now that moves us to the second thing I just want to cover. Then we're going to have a few things in conclusion will be done. The association of mercy. There's four words that come closely, that are closely associated with the mercy of God. First of all is the idea of forgiveness. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us, not that Pharisee, not my tithing, not my fasting, not my merits, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own, there we go again, according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, that's the only one of two times the word regeneration is found in, in the Bible. The other time is in Matthew 19, speaking of the regeneration of Israel, yet in the future. But this is the regeneration of the individual who has appropriated the mercy of God and trusted in Christ. Who, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So mercy especially has to do with our sinful estate, which has caused what? Alienation from God. You being death, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. It is God's mercy that allows him to save us. So mercy is behind forgiveness, but it is infinitely larger than forgiveness. Perhaps the most beautiful of all mercy passages we love is Lamentations 3, 22, 23. The steadfast love, there's that Hebrew word hesed again. The steadfast, merciful Love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Aren't you glad? Where would we be? How in the world would I stand up here today if there was not a new appropriation of the mercy of God this day? They are new every morning. They never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. It's associated with forgiveness. It's also associated with love. God Ephesians 2, 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So mercy is bigger than forgiveness, but love is bigger than mercy. Because love can do a lot more things than mercy can do. Mercy presupposes a problem, whereas love can act where there is no problem. For example, the father loves the son, but the son doesn't need the mercy of the father. But there is no mercy without love. And God's mercy is funneled down through us through his love. Which brings us to a third word we often relate to mercy, and it's the word grace. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not result of works that any man may boast. Stay with me on this one. 
When God manifests his mercy, it always presupposes a problem. And not only that, but it always presupposes somebody in distress or pain or misery. But grace deals with the sin itself. Mercy, let's put it this way, mercy, God withholds what I deserve, namely justice and wrath. Mercy, God withholds what I deserve. Grace, God gives me what I don't deserve. Do you see the difference? The one he's withholding, that's mercy, but in grace, he is giving. Max Lucado wrote, the difference between mercy and grace, mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance, grace gave him a feast. I love that. I need mercy, but oh, I need grace. I need forgiveness, love, grace, but also then the fourth word, it gets a little more complicated here, is justice. Romans 3.20. When I read Romans, and, and I've studied this, and I've, believe me, whittled down, 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 and cut stuff out that I knew time didn't allow. I, I, I remember in my study thinking, I wish so much sometimes I were 30 years old again. I wish I had years ahead I could preach. I would love to do a series on theological words. And when I look at Romans, I see this, and are justified. What a beautiful word, Justification. The judicial act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified. No, no, no. Not just as if I never sinned. Justified. I'm as perfect in the eyes of God as Christ. As perfect as Christ. Justifies by his grace as a gift through the redemption. What a beautiful word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. New Testament word. God was not propitiated. God was not satisfied in the Old Testament. Sins were not washed away. Sins were atoned for. Day of atonement. Yom Kippur. Kippur to cover. Sins were covered over. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what? Sat down on the right hand of God. No more sacrifice to be made. He said, it's finished. And God is now, here we go, propitiated, satisfied. He looks at you in Christ and he says, I am satisfied. I justify you. This was to show God's righteousness. Beautiful. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, here's the solution to the age-old question. How can a holy, just, righteous God who can't allow sin into his presence then justify the sinner? How can he remain just and yet be a justifier? And there's only one answer. And that is someone came and took our place in our stead and took the punishment and the justice and the judgment that I deserve. So when he was nailed to that Roman cross, that bloody Roman cross, and God judged him in your place, in my place, so that he's just and the justifier. The question was raised 4,000 years ago, Job chapter nine, verse two. How can a man be righteous before God? And then he goes through the whole verses and he talks about how marvelous God is and how, how sinful he is. And he says, how can it be? 
And then he cries out at the end of that chapter. I love it. He's not a man as I am, that I may answer him, nor is there any daysman. What's a daysman? That's the word when the Greeks language took over universally and they took the Hebrew scriptures and translated them into the Greek called the Septuagint and they came to this word daysman. Neither is there a daysman between us. They use the same word that is found in 1 Timothy 2.5 for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's the answer to Job's question. He says, neither is there any daysman or mediator between us. Now listen, who may put his hand on us both That's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. With one hand, as it were, he took the holy hand of God in heaven, and with the other hand, he grasps your sinful hand, and he becomes the Pontifex Maximus, and he becomes the bridge builder, and he brings them two together through the blood of the cross. God says, I'm satisfied. I justify the guilty. Because he came into the world and he bathed the Christ. He took that judgment. Now when I reject that mercy and that love, there will be a merciless judgment upon those who do not accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for their sins. God cannot be merciful to you without justice being served or he would violate his own character. So, mercy is special. It's more than forgiveness. It's less than love. It's different than grace. And it's one with justice. All that comes together in mercy. Now, let me close out with just a few practical thoughts for you. Three in particular. I want us to talk now about the access to mercy. And here we are in Hebrews. And it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, there's that word again, propitiation for the sins of the people. He becomes the high priest, he becomes the one offering up the sacrifice, but he becomes the Passover lamb, the sacrifice itself, shedding his blood for the sins of the world. Let us then as believers with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But we need mercy. We need mercy day unto day, hour unto hour. What would we do without the mercy of God? What in the world would we do I need mercy because we're flawed. That's the first reason why we need mercy, because we're flawed. Listen to Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This verse reminds us that none of us are Flawless. None of us are perfect. We're flawed people. I've got standards and so do you. I don't even live up to my own standards. You say, well, you're a hypocrite and you're right. That would be a correct statement. I've got standards. Maybe they're similar to yours. Do I live up to them always? No. 
And then I think of God's standards. And I go beyond the external, I go to the internal, the thing of the heart and the mind. If a man does this in his head and he's angry in his emotion, he's lustful in his spirit. And all I can say, with Paul and you, we say together, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm so flawed. So how does God respond when we mess up? He always responds with mercy. Always. I chose a couple stories to illustrate with, and I chose ones that I felt most of you would know. And this one illustrates it in John chapter 8. You know the story, the woman caught up in the act of adultery. Verse 2 says, Now it was early in the morning, 6 o'clock, let's just say 6, could be 7, could be 5, let's just pick a number. Jesus goes to the temple before the Middle East sun is beating down and he's teaching. Got people, got disciples, learners, multitudes gathered around him, he's teaching. And all of a sudden they're interrupted in their Bible study. Scribes, Pharisees brought to him a, a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, he said to him, Behold, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Moses and the law said, She should be stoned, but what do you say? I weep when I read this passage. And then I get mad. They take this woman caught in adultery. Oh, yeah, then they add. Did you catch the words? This woman caught in in the very act. I don't want to be improper. She was pulled from her partner. Imagine the shame. Very act of adultery. They wanted to make it known. This isn't in you. We were there. We saw it. We pulled her from him. Now, if you think at all, you've got to say to yourself, where's the man? He was part of the deal. I saw a painting of this over in Italy, and they were very artists, discreet, but you, you could see the back of the woman, the bare back, and she was bare. She was a piece of raw meat to advance their agenda. That's what you have. They had an agenda in mind to test him. Now, Jesus, Moses says she needs to be stoned. What do you say? Caught, caught, caught. It's an important word. Easy to get caught in a wrong relationship, isn't it? Easy to get caught in sexual sin, isn't it? Easy to get caught in a lie, in a bad business deal, in addiction. And you know what? God knows all about it. Every jot and tittle. 
And Jesus protects the woman's dignity publicly. I love that. And he said, okay, whoever is among you without sin cast the first stone. Then it says twice. He knelt down and he wrote in the sand on the floor. Just like you. It's one of those things I tuck away in my mind is that I can't wait to ask him, what did you write, Jesus? Was it the law of God? I don't know. Was he writing their sins? I, don't, I just don't, it doesn't say. We'll find out someday, I think. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, they left the place. So that Jesus didn't condemn her, neither did he condone her, but he changed her. That's what mercy does. It forgives and frees me from my past, and that mercy helps me to do better in the future. And even when I fall flat on my face, the mercy is there, isn't it? As we appropriate it. Let's be reminded I've come to save the world, not to judge it. Mercy is available to all of us here this morning. But mercy rejected becomes justice invited. Trust me, you don't want justice. We need God's mercy because we're flawed. We also need it because we're frustrated. Listen to just some of these very familiar verses. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in us also in me. Be anxious for nothing, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. All these verses remind us that we all have, we're all lacking something we need inside. We have disabilities, mental, emotional, physical. And I get very frustrated with myself. So those are the times that I'm reminded to depend on God and on others. So I go to another familiar story in the Gospel, John chapter 5. There's at Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, Beth House, Esda, Mercy. The House of Mercy is Bethesda. And there are a great multitude of people, blind, lame, paralyzed. And then the legend says this, that with all these, these disabled people around this pool, Bethesda, that every so often the legend says an angel would trouble the water and the first person there who touched the water was healed of his disability. There was a man that was there for 38 years that never walked. And Jesus singled him out and he says, will you be made whole? Do you want to be whole? That's another Sermon someday, why did Jesus ask that? Because some people don't want to be made whole, by the way. Some people really don't want help. That's another story. Do you want help? He says, sir, all I can tell you is every time the water's troubled and I try to get there, somebody gets there before I do, and I am so frustrated. 38 years waiting. Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the man trusted Jesus' words, and he was immediately able to walk. 
One reason why we get angry and we get frustrated and disappointed in life is we're looking to other things and other people to meet our needs that only God can meet. If only the circumstances were different, if only the people around me were removed, if only my condition were changed, if only things were different, I wouldn't be so doggone frustrated. I've got six grandsons, ages one to 20. The second oldest one is a special one. Diagnosed with autistic tendencies. Um, He's at Word of Life on staff at camp this summer. Graduated from high school, we were there in June. Cried my eyes out. If you would have told me five, 10 years ago, he'd be graduating from high school, I'd say you're crazy. If you tell me he'd be serving on staff at camp, I'd say you're nuts. So he called me this week. Grandpa, everyone's rude up here. No one likes me. It's always everyone, no one, nobody, everybody. There's no any, it's black or it's white. My, my daughter, his mother, she just tells us, the only one that understands me is Grandpa. That is, I am so out to lunch. <laughs> I, I don't understand him. I never have. And I get so frustrated. As parents, as grandparents, we want to fix things. I can't fix it. Fix it. And it's frustrating. He's still there. Grandpa, I'm got to go home. You know the drill. I'll get a call again this week. That's good. I tried to get in his head, but I can't get in there. He has a brother a year older, a brother a year younger. They would say to me through the years, and if you know anything about autism, can be very difficult having, because one person in the household can control the whole household, the entire household. Grandpa, you don't understand what it's like. No, you're right, I don't. But I would say to this to them individually, I'd say, suppose, how would you like to be in Kel's body and mind? How would you like to be Kel? I don't. Frustrating. But when I look at my frustration and I look at situations some of you and many people I know are dealing with, mine's minimal. And I feel for some of you. I know a few. It's got to be very frustrating. When I ask for God's help, God's mercy makes the impossible possible, but sometimes God doesn't remove the problem, does he? But he does give supernatural power to handle it by his mercy. Listen to Second Peter. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. You know, I've used this verse with people, and myself, others that I've counseled, and many times I even feel guilty when I use it. Because they can look at me and say, you know, you don't understand what I'm going through. And I have to say, you're a doggone right. I don't, and I don't know if I could handle it as well as you do. 
What I do know is this, God promises to give us everything we need to cope with that situation and to have victory. That's what that verse says. God will never give me one more thing to handle, but that he doesn't give the grace and mercy and strength to come out on the godly side. Let's close it out. Frustrated, we're flawed, and we need God's mercy because we're fading. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we all fade like a leaf. Wow. Now the ones who are especially with me after I read that verse are those of you who are up around my age. Because we realize the outward man is what? Perishing. We're getting old. And sooner or later, sickness, disease, ultimately death comes. And we never know when it comes. We get reminders of our mortality every so often. And sure, it's nice to have good people by your side at a time like that. But sooner or later, it's all fading away. Now, what do you do when that life fades away and you're drawing your fleeting breath? Let's be reminded of the passage earlier that we're just about done. The tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says he went away justified because he was humble in spirit, honest in self-evaluation, a sinner, honoring to God's holiness, justice, and could only throw himself on the mercy of God. That's the only place we go. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm told it's a true story, I don't know if it is or not, but I'm told it is of a mother who visited Napoleon Bonaparte on behalf of her condemned son who was sentenced to death for the two crimes that he had committed. And Napoleon reminded the lady that justice demanded the death penalty. The mother said, sir, I don't ask for justice. She's crying, she's pleading, she's begging. I don't ask for justice. I only ask for mercy. Napoleon says he doesn't deserve mercy. The mother said, you're right, he doesn't deserve mercy because then it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. Napoleon said, you're right. I'll grant your request and show mercy. And so God's mercy does not conflict with his holiness and justice, but is one with it since he's been satisfied through the death of his beloved son and anyone who trusts in Christ as Savior is justified, forgiven, and then we go on appropriating the mercy of God. How we need the mercy of God, right? Every day, every day. Thank God it's never exhausted. We're fading, we're frustrated, and we're flawed. That's where we focus, zeroing on the mercy of God. I want us to do that through a song this morning. I've probably listened to it 50 times this week. And I think I've wept through it every time. Mercy Me is my favorite contemporary group. But I've got a favorite song. So let's turn off the lights, let's go to the video, and we'll be done. Flawless. Flawless. Flawless.